I agree with one author's assessment of Christ's ministry along these lines when he wrote, Jesus Christ never made calls for political or social reform, even by peaceful means. He never attempted to capture the culture for biblical morality or to gain freedom for his followers. He did not come to proclaim or establish a new social or moral order, but a new spiritual order, his church. He did not seek to make the old creation moral, but to make his new creatures holy. Ladies and gentlemen, the most powerful tool on the planet in the hand of God is not moral government, but a godly believer. We can sometimes become so fixated on trying to bring about political reform that we forget the key truth Stephen just described. The real solution for the needs of our culture are spiritual. The gospel has the power to transform lives and transform cultures. Because the deepest human needs are spiritual, the church must focus on the heart more than on politics. Thanks for joining us today here on Wisdom for the Heart. We're in the middle of a three-part series on the Christian's relationship to politics and civil government. Here's Stephen. In our last discussion, we began going to Romans chapter 13. We didn't get very far. We're not going to get much further today. But I mentioned a number of verses one of which was 1 Timothy 2, 2. Just listen. Paul tells Timothy, above all, that is with your first priority, here's what you do. Make entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, all of this before God on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. You know, I am convinced that the problem isn't that we don't understand a passage like that, it's that we don't want to obey it. And it certainly isn't easy, is it? Any more than it would be for a woman who is married to an unbelieving husband to, as Peter exhorted, to win him without a word. How hard is that? How frustrating might that be? To win him without a conversation, my text reads. How reversed does that logic seem? To our minds. Win your unbelieving husband, not by putting tracks in his lunch pail, sermon cassettes in his car radio so that when he turns on the car, he hears me saying, repent, sinner, you know, cueing it to just that moment. Now, without a word, in Romans 13, we're given the same kind of seemingly reverse logic, but it's true. We are given the origin of government, we are given the obligation of the believer to government, and we are given the operation of government. Let's just go read just the first few words again. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authority, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves, for rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister, literally a diakonos, a deacon of God. Imagine the government is the deacon of God. Interesting thought. 
It is the minister or the servant, as it were, of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God or an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Number one, the Christian is to obey every ordinance of government insofar as it does not require him to abandon his conscience, his worship of God, or his obedience to Scripture. You would think that surely the believer living in Rome in a decaying culture who is now a part of the new race of believer could violate the laws of the state. Surely the believer who's now belonging to another country, another city as it were, could abandon the city of man and refuse to obey. In fact, refuse to participate in anything in his culture. But the Bible basically says the opposite. He will actually tell the believer to subsidize the government, even though it's corrupt, by paying his taxes. You would think, and I believe the Romans would, that they could forfeit any payment to Caesar. And yet Paul will make it clear later on in the text that taxes are due and customs and honor. And not to do so would be to violate the command of God. A second principle follows a moral or just government is not necessary for the church to fulfill its mission. I agree with Erwin Lutzer who wrote, our nation needs an antidote today that is far more radical than politics could ever be. Our so-called culture war is really a spiritual war. Our problems are not fundamentally abortion, trash television, and homosexual values. The roots of our cultural decay are first and foremost spiritual. We must attack the root of this corrupt tree. Then our greatest challenge is theological, not political and cultural. It's critical to understand that distinction as it relates to our mission. That leads me to my third principle. The mission of the church then is not moral reformation, but spiritual transformation. Have we forgotten that a policeman who's upright will go to hell as quickly as a prostitute with no moral standing at all? That an upstanding judge is as much under the condemnation of God as the criminal he's sending to jail, and rightly so. Let me say it another way. The church as a whole and Christians as individuals were never given the charge from God to halt or even diminish the evil practices of their societies. Does this mean we don't care? Of course not. We care, but it means we pursue change in our society by striking at the root. We do not deal with symptoms. We deal with the cause and we deal with one disciple at a time. Doesn't that sound old-fashioned today? Doesn't that sound so odd? Doesn't it sound slow? I admit it sounds slow to me to suggest that the mission of the church in impacting society is to act like salt and light, which has a process of pervading the darkness with the truth that the world might see our good works and glorify God. You mean it's going to take my life and my passion for good works so that ultimately my depraved society might in fact glorify the God I represent. That's just it. Our mission is spiritual reformation. I agree with one author's assessment of Christ's ministry along these lines when he wrote, Jesus Christ never made calls for political or social reform, even by peaceful means. He never attempted to capture the culture for biblical morality or to gain freedom for his followers. 
He did not come to proclaim or establish a new social or moral order, but a new spiritual order, his church. He did not seek to make the old creation moral, but to make his new creatures holy. There was no effort on his part to eliminate social or political injustice, although his followers would live such lives that social structures would be affected for the next 2,000 years. Ladies and gentlemen, the most powerful tool on the planet in the hand of God is not moral government, but a godly believer who acts as salt and light. We pray to have the first, but we cannot do without the second. I challenge you to study the preaching and theology of Christ who never intended his disciples to claim or reclaim any nation, but to go into all the nations and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we save that as we bring to faith in Christ by means of our gospel, those within our nation. Let me say it again this way. Number four, our mandate on earth is not to save our nation, but to bring individuals from this nation to salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Then our task is the proclamation of the gospel. This is life changing. This is society changing. This is nation changing power. It is the power of God through salvation, Romans 1, 16, to swap our gospel for political activism, which seems to expect government to somehow become an ally of the gospel or the morals of Christians is to simply imply that the gospel isn't powerful enough It isn't fast enough, it isn't effective enough, it isn't sufficient enough to stop the toboggan slide into greater immorality. Tragically, it neglects our mission and ultimately distorts our gospel. It is the spiritual equivalent of a heart surgeon abandoning his profession to become a makeup artist, to spend his time making people look better rather than saving lives. The mission of the church is not to change our nation, although that is often the benefit and byproduct of believers who live faithful lives for God. The mission of Christianity is to join the Father who seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In Romans chapter 13, submission to government is the command of God. That's the first principle that he delivers to the Roman believers, which would have shocked them to no end. The obligation of the believer to government is clearly spelled out. He writes in verse 1, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. The word subjection is a military term which means to fall under the rank of another. The word refers to obeying the commands of government like a junior officer obeys the command of a senior ranking officer. When that senior ranking officer on the base walks by a new recruit, if he stops and he tells that recruit, give me 40 right now. That young recruit doesn't argue, doesn't debate, doesn't say why. He drops and he gives him 40 push-ups. This is simply an issue of authority. It isn't a statement of value. That new soldier might be a better, more honest, more upstanding soldier, more committed to the army than his superior officer. It doesn't matter. He responds to his authority with obedience. When that authority dressed in gray or blue, pulls up behind you with flashing lights. How do you respond? With obedience, right? Number two, institution of government is the creation of God. While the first part of verse one has to do with the obligation of the believer to government, this next portion of verse one reminds the believer of the origin of government. For there is no authority, Paul writes, except from God, and those which exist are established by God. 
Now, if you look in your text, you'll probably see the word authority several times. It's a key word. It's already appeared twice in verse 1. In the original languages, there were two words that could be translated authority or political power. The word kratos, which means to rule, is a reference, as one a linguist says, to the naked rule of power. It's simply the power, sheer power to decide. Demos means people. You connect demos and kratos, demokratos, and you come up with democracy or the power of people to rule. The other word that is used in the New Testament is the word exousia. This means delegated power. It is the power granted to someone by another more powerful to do the bidding of that one in greater power. This is the word used four times by the Apostle Paul. The authority of the government to rule is delegated power from God. If God didn't give power to both godly and ungodly governments, they would never rise to power. We're told in the writing of Scripture that God elevates even base or evil power, but they are still under his control. It is from God that these powers come to be, and, and it is to God that these powers are accountable. So here in one word, exousia is both the legitimacy and accountability of worldly governmental power. By the way, if you're worried that the governments of our world will get away with what they have decided and how they have governed Think again. There is a greater judgment to those who are in authority and power to do evil, just as there is a greater condemnation that I will face as a teacher than you will face as a pupil. The classic encounter between two kings spells this out, and we don't have time to look, but in John 19, Jesus Christ stood before Pontius Pilate. Do you remember that encounter? I wish I could have seen that. The true king standing there in his dignity, yet in silence. Pontius Pilate asking him question after question. Jesus Christ refusing to answer any of them until he got to the question Jesus knew he wanted to answer. Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Literally defend yourself, which Jesus, in fulfillment of prophecy, refused to do. Don't you realize, Pilate said, that I have the authority to either release you or to crucify you? Now, Jesus' answer is entirely significant. In fact, I can't imagine how incredibly encouraging it would be to the suffering church over the last 2,000 years. Here's his response. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Wow. Same word, by the way, Paul uses. You have no authority over me, Pilate, unless heaven has given it to you. The power you have to rule is delegated power. Then Christ goes on to say, For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. In other words, both of you are sinning. Those who delivered me up and you standing before me. And you will stand accountable for your political decision to deliver me up. But in the meantime, think about this. Your decisions, both those of you who delivered me up and you who delivers me over, those decisions are the will of heaven. What is the authority of government, truly? Is it the badge of the policeman? Is it the robe of the judge? Is it the crown of a king? Though no, they are simply symbols, and behind them is the authority of God. 
For within every agency of law and civil authority is the investment of divine power. Perhaps that's why corrupt judges are so abhorrent to God. False scales, corrupt officials. They are violating their ordained purpose by and from God and they will stand accountable with a greater condemnation because of it one day. That doesn't change our mission. Just know, church, if we are delivered up, if we are treated unfairly, it is only by means of the permission of the greatest power known by the authority of God. Number three, disobedience to government receives consequences from God. As it relates to submission to just law, the believer has no right to obey or disobey. Paul writes in verse two, look there. He says to these believers in Rome, therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation. The word could be rendered judgment upon themselves. In other words, opposition to government is opposition to God. The believer, by opposing government's just law, receives two disciplines. If I had decided to speed up when I saw those lights and I thought I can take this guy and I can lose him, I would never think that, just so you know. Besides, my truck can't move that quick anyway. But suppose I thought I'll lose this guy and we start a chase. He eventually catches me. I will receive greater condemnation because of my actions. And I will also be in discipline by God because I have violated his law. So to resist the just laws of government means that I'm going to get it on both hands. From the government and from God. That's his point. Peter writes then in agreement, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human ordinance. That's convicting, isn't it? Whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God. We don't have to ask, is it God's will for us to obey? He ends it by saying, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the emperor. You got to be kidding. Peter, honor the emperor. Do you know who the emperor is? The truth is, Christians are to be model citizens respectful of governing authority and individuals holding the posts, whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not. We are not to be demeaning and demanding, rebuking, and a dozen other tactics employed to somehow have our rights resolved. Imagine this, honor the emperor. Submission to government is the command of God. The institution of government is the creation of God. Disobedience to government receives consequences from God. And number four, the justice of government reveals the character of God. Look at verse three. Paul writes, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. You notice the contrast between good and evil? You go back into those verses and circle the word good and evil. Good and evil, which has tremendous implications. Even when governments refuse to acknowledge who God is, They know the difference between good and evil. 
Even when they choose to practice evil, they know intuitively it's evil and the opposite is good. The word avenger in verse 4 is a word that means to exact a penalty. They penalize those who do evil, but even those who refuse God understand the truth. They understand absolute morality. They understand right from wrong, good from bad. And your unbelieving neighbors know the same. Even if they refuse God, refuse the gospel, they know some things are wrong and some things are right. Experiment with them sometimes. Steal his car. No, not, not really. Maybe take your car and run over the bushes he planted between your yards. Or maybe back into his mailbox, maybe accidentally. Knock it down. And he's going to come out and he's going to say, hey, you can't do that. Why not? Well, it's against the law. And you shouldn't do those mean things. Those are bad things. Well, who said? I don't feel bad. Listen, the only valid basis for moral law is previously existing morality. And the governments of our world and the politicians of our world, whether godly or ungodly, give credence to this previously existing morality. No matter where you go in the world, stealing or damaging possessions of your neighbor is wrong. God ordained then government to reflect this pre-existing morality. He established the government to reflect his attributes of justice and honesty and equity and impartiality. Which means that government must be concerned with moral issues. Because laws are based on the moral perfection of God. However, this is not the same thing as saying that government is to develop morality. It cannot do that. It can prescribe penalties. It can enforce them. It can perhaps restrain evil. But it cannot change the people involved. The only thing that can change people is where the church comes in. We would love to live in a society where evil is restrained. And we're seeing the absence of that more and more and more. The mission of the church doesn't change though. It is to reform the heart. To redeem the person. The truth is... The solution for an immoral society is not even more law. Do you know the government simply attempts with its thousands of laws to try and uphold ten commandments? Ten words from the standard of morality. Because the human heart says, well, I'll get around it by doing that. Government has to come along and say, no, you can't do that either. Civil society says, no, you can't go around that there either. Why? Because the natural man who hates the things of God intuitively fights against moral truth and finds his way around and under and over and through the law. And so a good society will continue to pump out all the law they can, even though that law will never reform the heart. That's where we come in. That's the wonderful truth of the believer who influences his society as a lawyer, as a politician, as a member of the PTA. In all of these ways, we know the absolute moral giver and we understand the implications of moral law and we act as salt and light. Let me close quickly with two reminders to help us stay on task. Number one, let's just remember our mission. Go and make whom? Disciples. They are followers of Jesus Christ. And again, I say God has not called us to go and make bad people better. The mission of the church 
is to, with the gospel, redeem sinners. He hasn't even commissioned us to go and make monotheists. Monotheists can die and go to hell, James wrote. You believe there's only one true God? Great demons believe that and they shudder. The mission of the church is not even to go and make converts. That's closer. That's the beginning. But we are to make disciples. A disciple influences his world, whether he's a mechanic or a computer salesman, a doctor, or a housewife. For all of us, our mission is the same. The only difference is the sphere of influence where God places us for his glory. What is our mission? You shall be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the ends of the earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Let's remember our mission. Number two, let's reaffirm our message. You, ladies and gentlemen, who've come by faith to Jesus Christ, happen to be a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a a peculiar people of his own. I love the way the King James translates that. We're peculiar people belonging to God. Why? So that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into a marvelous light. The apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 1 verse 2, we are proclaiming eternal life. What greater message is that? We are proclaiming eternal things. That's the message we need to reaffirm. I wonder how many politicians have heard from us as Christians regarding their views our disappointment, our frustration, maybe even our threats who never hear the gospel. One author was interviewed by a reporter, a well-known reporter who had interviewed 40 evangelical and Christian leaders on their opinion regarding various issues related to influence in government, politics, issues, beliefs. At the end of his particular interview, he asked the reporter this question. Has anybody in all of your interviews, ever shared with you the gospel of Jesus Christ? To which she responded with total innocence and honesty and asked, what's the gospel? See, what is the message our world is hearing today? C.S. Lewis, who's been with the Lord now for a number of years, spoke insightfully, almost prophetically to our day when he wrote these words. I close with them. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that we have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Ladies and gentlemen, let's stay on task. Let's remember our mission. Let's reaffirm our message. Let me say it this way. Let's go back to the actions that make the church great and honor and glorify our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's remember our mission Let's reaffirm our message. That's a good reminder for all of us today. You're listening to Wisdom for the Heart. Stephen's message is entitled, Staying on Task. 
and it comes from his series called I Pledge Allegiance. We have this series available for you in our resource library as a set of CDs, and we've made it into a book. You'll find both resources on our website, wisdomonline.org, or you can call us today at 866-48-BIBLE for information. Join us tomorrow for more Wisdom for the Heart. 